Let's cut through the mainstream financial advice out there. This is your quick financial tip from your rich uncle. Let's back up because some people, so we don't leave anybody behind here. Some people slow down to absorb a lot of this, which is makes a lot of sense to me as you go over this. And this is what a lot, a lot of this content is actually taught through a large module in Richard's uh, Market Watch content on his uh, website. But maybe how about we go to creditism and quantitative easing? Quantitative. I think people hear about it, but maybe not all together. They hear it spoken about in the news here or there. Okay. So again, once dollars ceased to be backed by gold, our economic system evolved and it evolved into a system that requires credit growth. Our economic system, our economy became dependent on credit growth. For example, going back to 1952, every time total credit in the U.S. grew by less than 2% adjusted for inflation, the U.S. went into recession. And the recession didn't end until there was another very big surge of credit expansion. So that's, that tells us that the U.S. economy requires at least 2% credit growth adjusted for inflation to stay out of recession. That happened nine times between 1952 and 2009. And every time the credit grew by less than 2%, there was a recession. Now, let me add this. Total credit has, has accelerated so radically during my lifetime. What I mean by total credit, total credit is the same thing as total debt because one person's debt is another person's asset, a credit that they've extended as debt to someone else. So you can look at this as all the debt in the country, not just the government debt, but the household's debt, the corporation's debt, the financial sector's debt, all the debt in the country first went through $1 trillion in 1964. By 2007, just on the eve of the financial crisis, it had expanded to more than $50 trillion. So that was a 50-fold expansion of credit in just 43 years. And now total credit is $90 trillion. So $90 trillion of credit expansion in just 52 years. And credit growth became the main driver of economic growth. And as I've said, anytime credit grew by less than 2%, the U.S. went into recession. Then, so the crisis of 2008 occurred because the private sector had taken on so much debt, the households in particular, had taken on so much debt that they couldn't repay it. They couldn't continue paying interest on their mortgages. And so they started defaulting. And the private sector started defaulting and the banks started to fail. But the government intervened very aggressively with multi-trillion dollar budget deficits. And the Fed helped finance those budget deficits with money creation. So between 2008 and 2014, the U.S. government debt increased by $7 trillion and the Fed created $3.5 trillion through quantitative easing to finance that government debt at low interest rates. And they, that combination of government fiscal stimulus and money creation by the Fed prevented a new Great Depression. It reflated the global bubble that started to pop in 2008 and it carried on, it carried us on up until 2020 when COVID started. So I described this new, the way the economy works now, it's driven by credit growth. So rather than calling this capitalism, I call it creditism. Capitalism was an economic system that was driven this way. Businessmen would invest, some of them would make a profit, they would save their profits, or in other words, accumulate capital. 
hence capitalism, and repeat. So it was driven by investment and saving, and then more investment and more saving. And that's what drove economic growth under capitalism. But in recent decades, that's not the way our economic system works at all anymore. The growth driver for our economic system for decades now has been credit growth and consumption and more credit growth and more consumption. So our economy has become dependent on credit growth. And as long as credit keeps expanding, everything's fine. But when credit slows down and grows by less than 2% adjusted for inflation, we have a recession. And if credit starts to contract, as it almost did in 2008, then we would go into a Great Depression. The government understands this, and it now manages the economy as best it can to make sure that credit keeps expanding one way or the other. So after 2008, the private sector really couldn't take on a great deal of additional credit. So the government had to drive the economy by borrowing and spending. And even with the government borrowing and spending on a multi-trillion dollar scale for the first four years after 2008, that still wasn't enough to make credit grow a lot more. It wasn't enough to get credit growing by 3%, in other words, adjusted for inflation. It was even with all the government stimulus and the government debt, credit growth was still weak. It was just barely above the 2% recession threshold, as I call it. So the Fed stepped in and through very low interest rates and round after round of quantitative easing, the Fed drove up asset prices and this created a wealth effect. The wealth increased and that allowed the Americans to consume more. And this, so this wealth effect engineered by the Fed supplemented the weak credit growth and allowed the economy to keep expanding. So from between 2009, the end of last year, total wealth in the United States expanded by 150%. Total wealth grew by $90 trillion in those 13 years, from $60 trillion in 2009 to $150 trillion at the end of last year. A 150% increase in, in household sector wealth in the U.S. And of course, the creation of $90 trillion of wealth was very helpful in making the economy continue to grow. It allowed people to spend more money, more consumption, and consumption's 70% of GDP, so that helped fuel the U.S. economy. And that, that made the economy grow. But the problem was, is that the wealth, the asset prices were moving up much more rapidly than income. So the asset prices became extremely inflated. There is a very good measure, a good index that I look at called, I call it the wealth to income ratio. And when the wealth to income ratio goes very high, that tells you that asset prices are too expensive and they're likely to correct. So what this wealth to income ratio actually is the household sector net worth, which I was just talking about, household sector net worth hit $150 trillion at the end of last year. It's household sector net worth divided by personal disposable income. So it's wealth to income. Now the average for this ratio, going back to 1950, this wealth to income ratio has averaged 550% since 1950. But during the NASDAQ bubble, it hit a record high of 620% because of the NASDAQ stocks were so expensive. And that bubble popped and it went back to its average of 550%. Then during the property bubble, the wealth to income ratio shot up to a new record high of 606, 
And then the property bubble popped in 2008, and this wealth to income ratio went back to its average of 550%. But by the end of last year, because of this extraordinary frenzy in, in all of the asset markets, the wealth to income ratio went up to 820%. That was 23% above its previous all-time high at the peak of the property bubble. This was telling us that asset prices were extremely stretched and very vulnerable to anything that could go wrong. And the thing that went wrong is inflation went up and the Fed had to start tightening very aggressively. And so now we've had the first half of this year has been the worst year for stocks going back to what, the 1960s. And in the second quarter in particular, it was particularly harsh. So we've seen NASDAQ down more than 30%. The S&P has been down more than 20%. Two-thirds of all the value of crypto has been destroyed. And other expensive asset prices are clash, crashing as well. But even after this, the wealth-to-income ratio, based on my calculations, is still 730%. So it's still 10% above its previous all-time peak in at the peak of the property bubble. So this is telling us that asset prices are still very expensive and potentially have a lot more downside to go. For instance, if the wealth to income ratio were to fall back to its 50 year average of 550%, a total of $50 trillion of wealth would have to be destroyed between the end of the last year and the time we hit the average. At the end of last year, total wealth in the US was $150 trillion. It's now down because of the sell off in the stock market. It's now probably about $135 trillion. But to return to its average, it would have to fall to $100 trillion. And that suggests that up to another $35 trillion of wealth could be destroyed before we return to the average. Now, it's not certain that we are going to return to the average, but much of that is going to depend on how high the Fed increases interest rates and how much money the Fed destroys through quantitative tightening. Lane is not a lawyer, CPA, but the dude did quit his engineering job and now owns thousands of rental properties. Learn more about the secrets of the wealthy. Join our community at thewealthelevator.com slash club. And if you're looking for a longer form podcast, also subscribe to the Wealth Elevator podcast.